it's obviously ridiculous to say when you're a black kid in a white world and the only heroes that you know, are available to you are white heroes and is the same as when you only have one black superhero, <laughs> white kids dressing up as that. When you're a minority subgroup surrounded and outnumbered and beleaguered, you know, the choices that you make are different kinds of choices qualitatively and otherwise. Hello and welcome to the Fatherly Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua David Stein. Today, my guest is author and host of the Van Jones Show on CNN, Van Jones. Van crashed onto the public consciousness on election night when he called Donald Trump's victory a white lash on live TV. But he's been engaged in social justice and race issues in America for his entire long career. We talk about how easy it is to demonize our opponents and why that's a bad idea, what lessons our public discourse brings home to our sons and daughters, and of course, Black Panther, Specifically, can my little white kid dress up as T'Challa? Afterwards, our science editor Josh Krish stops by and we get chatty about trauma. Ooh, it's a doozy. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Fiery Podcast. My name is Joshua David Stein. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you, Van, for joining us this morning. Good to be here. I wanted to start with one of the first lines you started with in the now famous White Lash segment on election night. You framed that entire comment as a parent. It's very difficult as a parent to speak tonight, to talk tonight. I've noticed in that case and in many other cases, you often frame political discourse as a father, as a parent. Can you tell me a little bit about why you choose to frame it that way? The easy answer is that, you know, I'm a dad all the time. And my boys are old enough, 13 and 9, that they sometimes see me on TV. And I can't just smash on my opponents and kick them in the face and say mean things to them and then come home and tell them to be nice to each other and nice to their classmates or whatever. There's a, a disconnect between the way that we deal with politics and the way that we deal with parenting. So I try not to get too far from my boys um, emotionally, even though I'm often very far from them physically. My show is on the East Coast. We live on the West Coast. So part of it is just psychologically, emotionally, I'm never that far from trying to be a good dad. Practically, a lot of people are parents. Not that many people are Yale-educated former White House staffers who work at CNN. <laughs> so I could count them on one yeah, hand. Yeah, exactly. So if I just stay inside of that identity, I, I might sound very smart and credible, but I don't think I would be able to communicate very well. Were your boys watching that night? Yeah. It's so powerful, of course, perhaps because you were actually speaking to your kids. Yeah. When the, you know, it, it fin- I finally got a chance to speak. I've been sitting on set for five hours. And none of the commentators were allowed to speak because they were still dealing with the facts. I mean, we, there was one scenario where we thought this thing might be wrapped up, you know, by 8 o'clock. We didn't get a chance to talk uh, because the news part, like what's actually happening. So there's the news side and I'm on the opinion side. And so, you know, Jake Tapper and John King and Wolf Blitzer and Dana Bash were still just trying to deal with what are the facts here. So it's, I think, 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. The opinion people, we haven't even spoken. When it finally gets to me, so much of the commentary had been about precincts and polling data, maybe some about region, maybe some about income. There had been no discussion at all about the racial dimension. And obviously, this is, you know, race played such a massive role in Donald Trump's rise, you know, the birtherism and all that kind of stuff. It just felt like it was impossible not to address it. So I knew I was going to have to address it. But before I address that, I just wanted to speak to, you know, I was getting text messages from all my Muslim friends, all my Mexican friends, all my, you know, good liberal friends, but also from my wife, <laughs> you know, saying, look, you know, the boys are crying and call if you can. Well, I'm on set, I can't call. So I was literally talking to my boys at the same time I was talking to the whole country or, you know, 80 million people around the world. I just said, it's hard to be a parent tonight. You know, you teach your kids not to be a bully, not to be a bigot do your homework, be prepared, and you have an outcome like this. A lot of the issues you bring up on The Van Jones Show relate to making sense of this. How did you, your boys are, you said nine and 13 now. Mm -hmm. How did you talk to your boys about it, just father and son? You know, by the time I was able to talk to them, you know, like most of the country, I mean, I'm, again, I'm on the East Coast, I'm in the, the, the D.C. Bureau, 
they're watching at home on the West Coast. So by the time I was able to talk to them, um, they'd already, you know, like most of the country, absorbed a bunch of it and were processing it, you know, themselves as kids. You know, kids are pretty resilient, but it, it, was, it was tough on them. And I uh, have tried to impress upon them and others that you don't get an outcome like this if the grown people are doing our job. If you have two healthy political parties or even one healthy political party, you can't have an outcome like this. Or more than two. Yeah, or more than two, fine. If you have any healthy political parties, outcomes like this aren't possible. The problem is that you have the grown people in the Democratic Party that were supposed to be the party of working class people and struggling people. We have allowed a kind of elitism, a kind of snobbery, a kind of, you know, if you don't use the right word the right way, if you don't eat the kale and the, if you don't know all the intersectionality references, then, you know, you're going to be looked down on. It's a kind of elitism that we have a blind spot to, but it's really obvious to other people. The Republican Party has a similar challenge. They started off as this anti-slavery party, you know, the party of Lincoln, but they have allowed uh, a kind of bigotry, a kind of, of racism to take root in their party, sometimes in polite terms and sometimes in blunt terms, but that's happening. They have a big blind spot to that. So when you have two parties... Wait, wait, wait. This is what you explain to your 9 and 13-year-olds? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, mean, listen, kids are really smart. Yeah. Kids are really smart. We underestimate them all the time. Yeah, you know, I, uh, my father, as we're talking about parenting me, my dad was uh, uh, born in in real poverty. In Tennessee. In Tennessee, yeah, in 1944. Grew up under segregation. Grew up in a a shotgun shack. Went to the military to get out of the situation came out, put himself through college, married the college president's daughter, my mother, went on to help his brother and his cousins get through college as well. So I have very deep roots in the middle of the country. I grew up in Jackson, Tennessee. I went to the University of Tennessee at Martin before I went to Yale for law school, public schools, you know, church irregularly. And so I understand the middle of the country very well. And my father still to this day, as he passed away in 2008, best political mind I've ever come across, my dad, just a former cop in the military who became an assistant principal and a basketball coach, ultimately became a principal of a middle school, just regular guy, could see through BS at a thousand yards. I have tried to take his approach to politics. My dad thought most politicians were up to no good. He thought both political parties pretty much sucked. He'd sit there and break down, watching CNN with me as a kid, break down every single argument in the, during the commercial breaks. There's a wisdom for everyday folks that, that uh, you don't need a PhD level understanding to know what the heck's going on in this country. Being a parent is something that a lot of us go through and the feelings that a father has for his sons or daughters is universally, one hopes, of love and protection. And you can really see the best in your kid and you want to see the best and you want to see their goodness. That's kind of part of being a dad, I think. How much of that can translate into actual change and cooperation? And how much of that is not a sufficient bridge when it comes to actually making a difference? In politics, sometimes you have to just beat the other side. You know, it's just politics. Sometimes you just don't agree and you're not going to agree. And so you have to go out and find a candidate and beat their candidate and find your votes and beat their, their bills and you know, stop their ballot measures. That's, you know, that's a part of politics. But there's another part of politics, too, which is when and where you can, you want to try to find places you can work together with people. The good thing about democracy is everybody gets to disagree. That's the whole point. Dictatorship, you can't disagree. That's the, the crappy part about dictatorship. Oh, all this, all this disagreement. No, disagreement is great. That's called freedom. Okay, there's no problem with that. The problem is when it becomes destructive disagreement. What you want is constructive disagreement. I'm going to fight you where I have to. I'm going to work with you where I can. This is what we tell our kids. So we tell our kids. We, we don't say, listen, Johnny or, you know, Chokwe or, you know, uh, Letitia or whatever doesn't agree with you on something. So hate them. Don't talk to them. Beat them up. Don't listen to them. Don't try to learn from them. Don't be their friend. When you see your kids acting that way, say, hold on a second. <laughs> so you guys don't agree on some stuff. I don't want to fucking hear it. Go over there and play fair and be nice and be a good kid or we're, we're leaving the park. That's, the, that's what we tell every kid. And 
if the other parent is saying anything other than that, there's something wrong with them. Right. You, know, you have to tell, okay, hey, look, our kids had some beef or whatever last weekend. They need to get over that. You know, can you help me with that? Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. I'm sorry. I don't know what happened. So why is that sufficient when you're parenting? But then when you go into politics, you go into some other zone. It doesn't work. You know, these kids don't listen to what we say. They watch what we do. Mm-hmm. And if it's good enough for third graders, it should be good enough for us. I don't think it's working. If you want a good country, if you want good policy, if you want people to get along and work together, the attitude of too many liberals and progressives now is actually the opposite of that. We're becoming what we're fighting. We're feeding what we're fighting and becoming what we're fighting. The key lesson out of parenting is that even in the disagreement, you want to try to understand. You want them to understand you. You want to try to understand them. And as long as a deeper fight is a fight for understanding based on respect, then it's only so far apart you can get inside that family. And that's true of a country as well. That's true of a country as well. And I don't want to hear it from liberals. We got the most privileged people in the history of the world who can't deal with a tweet. It doesn't make any sense. I'm sick of it. Like, it's a tough love conversation with liberals. Cut the crying and the crap. Okay, you didn't do your goddamn homework in 2016. 2008, you worked hard. You got an A. 2012, you worked hard. You got an A. 2016, you sat around and laughed at the other team and you got an F. And now you have to do the work to pull the country back together. You can't sit here and hope that tooth theory, you know, Bob Mueller, the tooth theory is going to come and give you the country that you want. Great hair, though. Hey, but listen, seriously, this is the problem. Liberals don't want to have this conversation about their own behavior and their own contribution to this mess. People didn't work hard in 2016. We were arrogant. We were elitist. We said, this guy can never win. He's a buffoon. He's a clown. And we didn't go to swing states like we did in 2008. We didn't do the house parties and the fundraisers like we did in 2012. We didn't do the phone banking. I don't know a single liberal sitting around here crying about Donald Trump now who worked as hard as they should have worked in 2016 or who worked as hard as they did work in 2012, 2008. So this is what parenting gives you. It gives you that strength to say with real love, but with real clarity, knock it off, kids. Knock it off. Do your homework. Listen, if all the progressives had taken this energy we spent praying for that Mueller is going to be the you know Easter bunny and deliver us, if we just taken all that energy and just done the phone banking in 2016, we wouldn't have a problem. So quit blaming other people. Quit the nonsense. Do your homework. Eat your spinach. The Fatherly Podcast is brought to you by Cheese Dippers by The Laughing Cow. Every kid's got an imagination all their own. Whether they're racing monster trucks, playing teacher, or dreaming of setting foot on Mars, even the wildest imaginations are hungry for more. Feed your kid's appetite for adventure with Cheese Dippers by The Laughing Cow. With perfectly crunchy breadsticks and creamy cheese, it's a crunchable, dippable, enjoy-however-you-wantable snack that's always a favorite. Plus, it's made to go anywhere their imagination takes them. Cheese Dippers by The Laughing Cow. Snack like you. And now back to the show. As a dad, one of the lessons that was a little indirect about with Trump and my own kids, you know, has to do with my own ego, of course, but seeing how insidious the effect of kind of a recklessly large ego and narcissism had such terrible consequences for the country and for so many people. Trump is a model in the sense of, oh, now I really understand this is what that kind of behavior leads to. What am I doing in my life, especially as a husband and a father, which has that sort of insecurity and ego gratification? I'm curious if you had the opportunity in your own home with this. Is it kind of devolved power from looking at the president as a model and a role model back to me. Not to say that when Obama was, but my kids are four and six. Not to say that when Obama was president, I was like, hey, my job is done here. Just look to the White House. But now that Trump is, and my kids are a little bit older, and your kids are even older than mine, he's not someone to look to. So now they look to other people, and now they're looking closer to home. Yeah. Kids are really smart. They look around everything. Yeah. They look at video games. They look at crap on YouTube. They look at you. They look at how your voice changes when you're on the phone with your buddy versus when you're on the phone with your boss versus when you're on the phone with your mom. They're very smart. You can't put anything past them. And so this whole thing, oh, you know, Trump, like they're like, okay, so 
it seems like the president's an asshole. That's what they're thinking. And it seems like my parents don't like the president very much. But they also like, but they don't like the president for being mean to people, but dad's being mean to people who like the president. You know, my, my, my son said, you're a lot nicer on TV than you are when you're talking to your, your staff, you know, at, at the Dream Corps about this stuff. I said, yeah, you know what, you're right. And it, it was a good reality check for me. Yeah. That, you know, on TV, I'm very like, you know, I'm tough, but I'm empathetic and I'm loving. When I'm talking to Dream Corps staff, I'm like, these motherfuckers, blah, blah, blah. It's good to have kids around because they keep us honest. You don't get to say, you know, my kid is a horror show, but, you know, it's, it's because of his horoscope. You know, no, no, that's that, that the person who said that that's not a parent. <laughs> right. Listen, I mean, whatever's going on in my kid's life, you know, I can't dictate the outcomes here, but I'm going to show up as if my actions are massively consequential for the outcome of this human being's life. Now, maybe the kid, no matter what you do, is going to be great or no matter what you do is going to be awful, but I'm going to show up with that level of responsibility. That's what I think is missing in our politics. People talk about accountability, which is I'm going to hold you accountable. But when it comes to me taking responsibility for the outcome in my country and in my party, which has become a hidey hole for a bunch of elitism, that conversation is off the table. Right. You start talking about us being responsible for what happened, that Democrats are the source of Trump in some important ways, then all of a sudden, you know, that's not allowed. But what about our kids? When we talk to our kids, okay, yeah, fine. Your brother did that and he shouldn't have done that. And I'm going to talk to him in a minute. But what did you do? What did you do? And how could you have handled the situation better? That's called being a good parent, but apparently it's being a bad Democrat right now. I don't buy it. I think the argument is, well, these are desperate times, and now is not the time to you know, be critical of ourselves. I, I imagine that that's a yeah. pushback you get. Which lets you know people have zero perspective, man. They blew up Dr. King's house. He was stabbed in the chest. He was under threat of death every day. They shot him in the face in front of his friends. And none of his friends quit. Every one of his friends are still alive. Andy Young, Jesse Jackson, all those guys still around doing stuff. We can't deal with a jackass sending out mean tweets without giving up all our values, without giving up all of our principles. These people who we say are our heroes, our worst day is their fantasy dream. But we're going to let some weird orange jackass turn us into him oh it's just too terrible we can possibly tell that to nelson mandela who was in prison for 27 years you know tell that to barack and michelle obama who were called the n-word and ape every day they're in the presidency and still still in the face of that barrage of hatred said we're going to get health care to babies in red states who don't have it we don't care what their parents call us the parents call us inward all they want to. I'm fighting for doctors, for babies in the red states, too. But we can't deal with some mean tweets. So this is why, you know, you're talking about parenting and being a father. This is dad talk. That tough love dad talk. Yeah. The next door neighbor's kid is a, is a terrible kid. And he shouldn't have called you that. And he shouldn't have pushed your sister. And I'm glad you pushed him back. Don't bow down to bullies. But then... When you throw a rock at his house, right? that's wrong. You cross over the yeah. line. It's like, yes, yeah, it's like, listen, cursing and screaming and yelling at me. These things happen, and it's a parental responsibility to draw those lines of distinction where you're sticking up for yourself and you're showing dignity for yourself. I'm proud of you. Once you start calling the other kids' names and using their behavior as an excuse for your behavior, we got a problem. Because I'm not raising them, I'm raising you. Did your general approach to politics and discourse change substantially when you first had your son 13 years ago? Was that the turning point? Was there another turning point? Look, I think, I think I've always been more independent than most leftists. Mm-hmm. I mean, even when I was like on the left side of Pluto, you know, anti-capitalist and anti, anti-imperialist and all that good stuff, I was still a Christian and going to church. But yeah, I mean, when I became a dad, I mean, that's a different thing. Where were you living? Oakland, California. When my older boy was born, all of a sudden, I'm like, hold on a second. I've been spending all this time, I'm in my 30s, you know, saying, F this system, screw these schools, screw this, screw that. My kids got to go to these schools. Don't burn the school down. Fix it. You know what I mean? Like, let's, don't, it's no longer F the system. It's like, fix the system. Like, I, I, I got I to gotta get this little guy from being, you know, teeny weeny little burrito-sized person 
So like a grown man in Oakland, I can't just protest everything and be right about everything. I think that having a kid galvanizes you one way or the other. Either you are engaged in the system and you want to change it because now you have skin in the game, new skin coming up. Or I think there's also, and I've seen it among my own friends, you become part of the system because you realize, especially if you look like me, oh, the system is kind of built for me. Maybe it's not so bad, you know? Regardless, I mean, everybody reacts to it differently. For me, you grow up in an instant. Everybody doesn't have to have kids to grow up, but for me, um, all of a sudden I'm like, crap. Like, it's me and this kid and, and my wife against the whole world in a certain way. I mean, like, I can't just go down to the arcade and hang out. Like, I got, you know, or, I mean, like, I, <laughs> what's an arcade? Yeah, exactly. I've been saying, like, metaphorically, like, I can't just go and just do stuff I want to do and, you know, have no, no responsibility to anything. And, and that was a big part of my turning, you know, away from some of the more, you know, militant, you know, politics that I, it was such a, a big part of my twenties is just like, people can't eat sound bites. People can't live under protest signs. You know, you have a great ability to problematize everything. So you suddenly become, I certainly became much more interested in solutions. Mm-hmm. How are we going to have clean air and clean water and good jobs and, and, and good education and safe streets for people? And when you start fighting for solutions, you know, you can call it pragmatism, or you can just call it like waking up from woke. I think people are so woke, they need to wake up from woke. It's almost about being courageous enough to not be so pure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, what is... And pu- get your hands dirty. What, what does purity get you except a happy feeling for yourself? Mm-hmm. We have people with just pure politics. They don't have any real problems. Right. Listen, if you have high principles and few problems, you can get way lost. It's when you have high principles and real problems that you can actually then start finding real solutions. One of our guests earlier in the season was Glenn Beck, who I know oh, is not a personal friend. No, but I love Glenn Beck. I love him. I disagree with a lot of his politics. Sure. And I think I probably fall into the camp, which isn't quite as enlightened as you in terms of I I have a hard time relating, even though it's my job as a host of the Fatherly Podcast, I have a hard time relating, connecting. He has four kids. I know you feel love and I can resonate with you on this feeling as fathers. But then on this other thing, you know, we talked about racism, which he called a human, not a white problem. I had a really hard time converting this good feeling into empathy on this other side. But the one thing I will say, which resonates with what you're saying so much, what he said is, you know, he's had this very publicly talented coming around in terms of, oh, well, my discourse was toxic and all this stuff was toxic. So it's interesting to me that even he has seen the toxicity of the discourse and he's trying to change that in some way. So, yeah, how can, how can you not love that? In other words, you don't have to agree with everybody on this stuff. I mean, liberals just suck it. It's like, I don't agree with him on gun control, so he, therefore he doesn't love people. That's bullshit. Listen, he thinks that guns will protect his family from an intruder, and he loves his family enough he wants to have a gun to protect them. That has nothing to do. You feel that your love in your heart leads you to say you want gun control so lunatics don't go and shoot up schools. And he says, the love in my heart says, I need to have guns to keep me safe from the lunatics. This is my question. What if the love in his heart and those conclusions lead to more kids being shot? And what if the love in your heart and your conclusions leads to more intruders coming in and raping, you know, innocent housewives who don't have guns? Where do facts live in this schema? Well, this is the problem. You just now enacted the complete inability of these empathetic liberals to have empathy for anybody who doesn't agree with them. <laughs> yes, but I made it 42 minutes in. Yeah. With, <laughs> well, congratulations. It. Thank you. Let me tell you why I love Glenn Beck. You know, this guy is... A- Sorry, hold on. Glenn Beck, for our listeners, Van Jones worked at the Obama White House. His organization led a boycott against some of Glenn Beck's shows. An organization I had founded at one time, though I was no longer associated with it, led a boycott of Glenn Beck's programming because Glenn Beck had accused President Obama of being a racist. Ultimately, Glenn Beck's show was forced off the air by the Color of Change organization that I helped to found. In between the beginning of the boycott and Glenn Beck leaving the air, he launched a kind of a personal jihad against me, pulling up quotes from my left-wing past and just made it almost impossible for me to stay in the White House, so ultimately I resigned. And also just some purely 
in fact, well, some of it was just total crap as well. But you know, so you know that stuff I don't like. It was a terrible situation to be in. You're working for the president in your dream job, and you resign because somebody with a massive platform has decided to just sort of bully you. And for me, having grown up, having you know been bullied as like a little nerdy kid. It brought up a lot of emotional, psychological issues. I was chemically depressed for a year. It was very, very tough to come back from. But even going through that, I knew that I had to protect in myself my capacity to rise above all that and not to respond with hatred. I felt like if somebody had pushed me out of a window in a 100-story building, and I had a little raw egg in my hand. And I had to somehow wrap my body around that raw egg. So when I hit the sidewalk, I still had that egg. I still had that belief and that, that love for people. And I was able to achieve that. And, and for that, you know, the whole thing was a blessing. For As far as Glenn Beck is concerned, though, um, let's not forget this guy, um, he, he's not a rich man's child. He wasn't born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He went through recovery. I mean, his, you know, drug problems and everything else. And he somehow manages to find himself with a massive platform and real concerns about the direction of the president. And he behaved in ways that he now says are irresponsible or were irresponsible. In some ways, like I was his first, you know, big success, you know, getting me to resign from the White House. In some ways, he struck a match off my forehead that's now kind of, frankly, burned down the country. And he's willing to say that. He's willing to say that. That is an extraordinary human being who's willing to say, the basis of my career may have been wrong. I haven't heard anybody in public life say that, period. So I love this guy. You had mentioned that you had been bullied as a child a little. Do you feel like that was protecting the egg and not walking around with so much hatred was born in those experiences? You know, when you when you grow up, you know, my dad was a hard worker, a hard smoker, and a hard drinker. So when you, you know, amazing human being, achieved a lot. But you grew up in a house where there's, you know, there's alcoholism present. You know, you grew up in a neighborhood where you're like a little, you know, nerdy kid with big glasses and skinny legs and books, books not, you know, basketballs under your arm. You get picked on. And you have traumatic crap. And when I was younger, that fueled a lot of, you know, kind of, the politics of outrage, you know, I was like, look, I'm now I'm six foot one and 190 pounds and I'm not going to be you know, back down to a cop or a mayor or anybody else. I'm going to stand up for what I believe in and all that kind of stuff. And people have to go through, through that phase. I don't, anybody who's in that phase, you know, God bless you. All I can say is you don't want to live there forever because on the other side of that, there's an opportunity to use that strength in a way that's even more effective because it turns out most of the people that you're mad at, they got bullied too. Most of the people that you're fighting in their own way, they are as scared of you as you are of them, whether they, you, know, you think it's legitimate or not. You know, a debate I've been having in my house is about Black Panther, which I think you'd call it a godsend, right? Yeah. My little kid Achilles is white as snow. He hasn't seen the Black Panther yet, but I hope he will. And I'm sure he'll want to dress up as the Black Panther. Mm. Now, the argument in my family is, do I let him dress as a Black Panther? My take on it is unpopular in my house and among everyone I've told is, no, it's not appropriate. It's not that he can't. It's not that he um, doesn't have the power to and there's no law against it. But part of recognizing white privilege is realizing just because you can do something doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. doesn't mean you should do it. Some of the discussions I've had, you know, the people who say that he should be able to wear it is, well, why not? Black kids dress up as Superman all the time. Black kids dress up as Batman, whatever. And I don't think that's exactly fair. I have not thought about this at all. It's really good parenting to actually think it through. It's obviously ridiculous to say that a black kid dressing up as Superman when you know, you're a black kid in a white world and the only heroes that you know, are available to you are white heroes and is the same as when you only have one black superhero. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, white kids dressing up as that. It's, it's just that, that kind of false equivalence, I think, makes it hard for us to just be honest about what's going on. When you're a, a, a minority subgroup surrounded and outnumbered and beleaguered, you know, the choices that you make are different kinds of choices qualitatively and otherwise. That said... 
I think the challenge that you have um, with Achilles is he's six. At what point do you want to have this conversation with your kids? To me, that conversation is easier to have with a 10, 11, 12-year-old than it is with a four, five, or six-year-old. Because you don't want the first conversation about race to be, you can't do something right. <laughs> that you really want to do. Check your white privilege. Exactly. But dad, what's privilege mean? Yeah, exactly. I'm six. Yeah, so that particular age group, their brains, they don't understand race really. They may have picked up on some of their parents' you know, prejudices and that kind of stuff. They may enact that and they may say mean things. But they, and generally at that age, it's so hard for them. And so to try and sit them down and explain 400 years of oppression, that type of stuff, I think that may be overkill. Uh, you get to be this kid's parent for a long time. The false equivalence, I would have to reject. Right. But the age appropriateness of which conversations about race is something that black parents have to worry about all the time. And the idea that white parents are now having that conversation, whatever you come to, I think is very, very, very encouraging. Come Halloween, yeah. and you have all these white kids running around as Black Panther. Net positive? Net negative? It's probably a net positive uh, just because you're going to have kids you know, able to identify across that line. So it's probably a net positive, but it's complicated. There are certain things that are very intimate to a community that's dealing with its own traumas that people who are not dealing with those traumas just shouldn't traffic in. On the other hand, weaving a new set of American mythologies that everybody is going to try to wrestle with, it's a new situation. I don't, I don't think there are ready answers when you're talking about children. If a white kid wants to be the Black Panther and the granddad says, I don't want you dressing up like that N-word, you say, hold on a second, granddad, there's something wrong with you. Right. Right? But then dad says, I don't want you dressing up like a black person because I don't want you stealing from their culture. All I'm saying is without knowing the answer. Now we're in it. Now we're trying to have a multiracial, multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-faith democracy on a gender equitable basis. And it turns out it's tough to raise kids in that. So this is what we have to wrestle with. I think it's net positive. Okay. So we're going to do this fatherly questionnaire. We ask all of our guests these questions. Wonderful. What is your name? Van Jones. Occupation. Dad and hosted CNN. Age. I am 49. How old are your children? Uh, 13 and 9. What are their names? I do not say their names in public. Why not? Because I am a public person in a political environment that would make it not safe for them. And they didn't sign up for it. That's right. Are they named after anyone in particular? Both my kids are named after African anti-colonial heroes and sheroes. Do you have any cute nicknames for your children? Yes, but I won't share them. <laughs> what do they call you? Popsicle. Um, how often do you see them? As often as I can, uh, I'm on the road more than 50% of the time, though. Was that a difficult choice to make, or was that a natural flow from your career? It's a difficult choice to live with. It's not a difficult choice to make. I have a calling on my life to try to fight for justice in the way that I, that I understand that fight. It's tough, I think, for them, but they're used to it. I'm sure they'll be in therapy about it at some point. Describe yourself as a father in three words. Uh, tough but fair. Describe your father as a father in three words. Tough and unfair. <laughs> <laughs> what are your strengths as a father? I think I'm pretty consistent in terms of what I expect from them. They don't have to guess. Like, yeah. you know, we, we joke and we have fun or whatever, but there's a, there's a line that they're not going to cross. And I think the kids need that. You know, that, that, um, they need something to push against. It's not going to fall over. What are your weaknesses as a father? Well, I'm just not there enough. So it's hard. So sometimes, you know, you come in and you have your own view about how things should go, but you weren't there two days ago when the kid had a really hard time at school and they're just in a more fragile place and you aren't able to moderate your own expectations based on what happened in the prior scene. Relatedly, what is your biggest regret as a father? Uh, you know, when the second boy was born, he was born literally like a few days before the uh, Democratic convention in 2008. And then the, the minute he was born, it was off to the races. You know, we the Democratic Convention in 2008. My book came out, my first book uh, came out, I think, in like, September. And then Obama was elected in, in November. And then we were in the White House by that spring. And then out of the White House by that fall. And then the whole kind of rebuilding of the career. So I just didn't get to spend as much time with the little one as I did with the big one. Because we were just, you know, broke marginal activists in Oakland when the first one was born. And and the great thing about having practically no money is that you just do more stuff. 
you're like, well, crap, we got to go to the store. Well, throw the damn kid in the car and we're going to drive to the store and hope that we got enough gas in the car to get back. You know, now we, you know, I'm not rich, but I'm well paid by CNN. And so, you know, you can, you know, we'll get a babysitter for this and we'll get this for that. And it's not DIY anymore. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's uh, not to glorify those those broke eviction notice years, but um, there's some good, good to it as well. What is your favorite activity to do with your kids? That's your special father and son's thing. You know, my kids taught me how to throw a football because I was such a nerd. You know, my dad was a big jock, big athlete. And, um, but he was so gruff that, you know, you throw the ball, you drop it, you start yelling at you. I'm like, screw this. I'm going to go read my comic books. I don't have time <laughs> for this shit. You know? So I never learned how to play like most sports. And uh, my kids are unbelievable athletes. My wife's an unbelievable athlete. And so they taught me how to throw a football and all sort of stuff. And so uh, even though they're much better at it than I am, I love just throwing the football around with them. And uh, sometimes maybe just wondering, like, what if my dad had been like 2% less gruff and I'd been able to hang around him more. What has been the moment you've been most proud of your kids as a parent and why? Most proud of with my kids. I think for the little boy, like, he's such an avid reader. And you know, I was, you know, as a kid as well. I wasn't as athletic. I was concerned that you know, he kind of started reading later than I thought he should start reading. But he just, once he started reading, I mean, he just, just won't put the books down. And uh, he's, he's such a creative little guy. But the big boy, you know, he's, he's a very talented athlete, but he also um, is a talented musician. And, uh, but he plays the flute. Now, I don't know any boys that play flutes growing up in Jackson, Tennessee. Do you know that many in L.A.? Uh, well, no, but I'm just saying, like, I don't... You know one. Yeah, exactly. So I go to hear him play, you know, at the school, and he just played so beautifully and, and shocked everybody. It wasn't like he played beautifully for a kid. He just played beautifully, period. And I was just like, wow, like, he knew what he wanted to do, didn't care about the peer pressure, and is up here just killing it. Slaying on the flute. Yeah, slaying on the flute and like earn respect, man, with that flute. So <laughs> that's, that's, that's pretty cool. What heirloom did your father give to you, if any? No heirlooms. He, my dad used to carry around in his wallet uh, a quote of uh, Douglas MacArthur's poem that he wrote to his son, which you, know, you can find out online. And when he died, my sister gave that to me. You know, a father to a son. He never told me that that was an important poem for him. He never read it to me. He never showed it to me. I didn't know anything about it. But I can see how I turned out, at least in my own mind, not too differently than what he had intended. And that was a good feeling. What heirloom do you want to leave your children, if anything? You know, I'm just not an heirloom type of guy. I mean, if either one of them wants to run the media company that we're building, that'd be great. <laughs> you know, won't have to uh, do a, a search. My wife won't have to do a search when I'm dead. You know, honestly, if they think that having me as a dad was a net positive, all in, all out, you know, the absentee crap, the having to deal with public life, but net positive, that's a pretty good outcome. Describe the dad special for dinner. Like when my wife's not there, shh. <laughs> whatever dude you know like first consume all candy left in the house second you know order yeah order you know what whichever combination of pizza no toppings or all toppings you guys can come up with third find the rest of the candy fourth maybe there's some cereal in there Fifth, she's going to be home soon. Leave me alone. <laughs> it's like a buffet. Exactly. A buffet of bad Exactly. All bad choices. What is a mistake you made growing up that you want to ensure your children do not repeat? As a kid, I mean, honestly, I'm proud that I, you know, as a kid, was able to figure out really quickly, drugs and alcohol are not for me. My dad, great guy, but after three or four beers, he wasn't a great guy. He wasn't physically violent. He was just an asshole. And I was like, that's just not for me. My mom told me when I was four or five, she's like, I was like, how come dad acts that way and my uncles act that way? She said, because they're drinking alcohol. And she said, all the men in your family, when they drink alcohol, that's how they act. And if you drink alcohol, that's how you're going to act. I said, I'm just never going to drink alcohol. The best decision I made in my life I made when I was four. So I, I think the mistakes I made, I made as an adult. Well, you touched on a little bit how you became more, I don't even want to say militant. Yeah, sure, militant's good. Okay, militant in your 20s, which you've moved away from. But then you also said it's kind of a necessary stage to work through. I think so. So would you look at that 
error is a mistake or no 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 i mean look i have never apologized for being a radical leftist and i never will i'm proud that when i was a, listen i left yale law school 24 years old i could have done anything i wanted to and i decided to move to the bay area and live in the mission district and sue cops and you know try to close prison you don't do that if you're a moderate. Right. <laughs> and uh, I'm as proud of the work that I did. The mistakes I made were just a lack of balance. No sense of eating right or resting or, or just being kind to myself. And when you're so out of balance and you're so mad at the world and it's all about the system, it's all about the man and that kind of stuff, you just make a lot of mistakes. You hurt a lot of people. You're not a good person to date. Um, you're not a good person to be around. You alienate a lot of people you grew up with in your family. And, you know, so those are the kind of mistakes. Are you religious and are you raising your children in that tradition? I am religious, but I'm not raising my children in that tradition. My older boy is, is avowedly not religious. My little boy is interested in it. You know, it's just hard. I mean, you know, they live in California. Godless. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, and it's, it's a real thing. People look at you as less than if you are a person of faith. You know, in the, in the cosmopolitan coastal centers all too often. And so you don't have a lot of support. And I think it actually hurts kids to not grow up with those structures. All the stories and the rituals and that sort of stuff, I'm fairly agnostic about any of them. I just think that they're important for kids. I think kids need those structures, even if later on they reject them. Whatever the wisdom traditions are of their society, they have tended to be passed down and using similar forms. Mm-hmm. Weekly observances, sacred texts, all that kind of stuff. I think they're basically saying, here's the deal. We're the first generation in human history. Just Google it. Just Google it. You have this uh, anecdote in Charleston with you and I think Jake Tapper. It's right after the shooting and they're singing and Jake Tapper says, how can they be happy? And you kind of explain to him this difference between happiness, which relies on external factors, and joy, which is more internal, and how that's a big part of the African-American church is experiencing that joy. When you're talking about these important traditions and this culture within religious institutions, it seems like that's something that you can't Google yeah. joy. Yeah, no, community and, and a place to kind of ponder the imponderables and to find a way out of no way. You know, the African-American faith tradition is, is a hallelujah anyhow tradition. Not hallelujah because something good happened, um, but hallelujah anyhow, despite the lynchings, despite the discrimination, despite the police brutality, despite the poverty. Hallelujah anyhow, because we're still here. We still have our dignity internally. We still have our joy, our celebration, our family, our tradition. Hallelujah anyhow. Well, Van Jones, thank you so much for joining us on the Fatherly Podcast. Thank you. Now Van Jones has been replaced by our science editor, Josh Krish, in the I studio. always miss all the good people. You know what? You couldn't look more different <laughs> or be more different. But I'm happy you're here. Happy to be here. Thanks. Van and I talked about Black Panther, and we have a difference of opinion. I think that my little white son shouldn't dress up as T'Challa, the Black Panther, because that's cultural appropriation and I think disrespectful. Van thinks that it's fine, and the idea of a cross-cultural identification and sort of admiration is a net positive. But I think his bigger point, and I have to say, I agree with that. I think cross-cultural identification is a wonderful thing. His other point was, what are you going to say to a six-year-old that's going to make sense to them, that my son, this little white kid, can't dress as T'Challa because white privilege and try to unpack white privilege and the history of oppression and American race relations. So I wanted to talk to you about how you talk to kids and when you talk to them about issues that are this heavy. How do you discuss trauma without being traumatic? Sure. So we have a parenting editor over at Fatherly named Patrick Coleman. You know Patrick. I heard of him. You've heard of him. Patrick spoke to a professor named David Sobel at Antioch University, and he has one rule that to me is very surprising, but it's a cardinal rule of how to teach trauma to kids, and it is no tragedies before the fourth grade, period. No tragedies before the fourth grade. Thank you, Josh. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see you next week. (laughs) Good to be here. Thanks. 
Uh, I don't know where to go from that. Uh, why? He seems to think they can't handle it. Not only can they not handle it, they can't contextualize it. So first of all, there's the risk of traumatizing them. So in, in the case of Van Jones explaining to Achilles a long history of oppression, slavery, slave ships, the terrible things that happened for a long period of time is traumatic. But in addition to being traumatic, Achilles is very unlikely to be able to contextualize that and do anything useful with it. So it becomes a horror story that has no moral message at the end of it. What's Achilles going to do with the information that people who look like him oppressed people who look like Black Panther? Besides be terrified. That's the thrust of the research. Sobel's not alone. Most experts agree that if you're going to be teaching tragedy to children, the Holocaust, climate change, natural disasters, 9-11, that until they're about 10 years old, it's really not even worth teaching. How do you talk about it? First of all, if you're Sobel, he'll tell you don't talk about it at all unless you're sure they're going to encounter it otherwise. So if it's something like 9-11 and your kid lives in a different country, you're living outside of the United States, and there's a good chance that until age 10, your child won't find out about 9-11, the discussion simply doesn't have to happen until the fourth grade. But the problem is that with a lot of these tragedies... For my son, for instance, I live in Brooklyn. Every fire truck, every firehouse has the Twin Towers and the smoke coming out. And my kids ask. Right. So at that point, there's an entirely different set of rules. First of all, step one is figure out what your children are going to inevitably encounter before the fourth grade. Because those you're going to have to deal with. Then what happens when you do have to bring it up? So the first thing is to make sure that all of the information that your children are getting is correct. And that's a teaching prerogative. The experts who study this call it straightening the line, which means correcting informational errors that children bring home and from the media. So that usually doesn't cause any trauma. The second important thing is to make sure that all children have accurate information going forward. So when you explain the trauma, focus on the facts and don't focus so much on the dramatization. Don't focus so much on grabbing their feelings. It's not terribly important that they be terrified or horrified by tragedies until they're older. What's important is that they know that they happened intellectually, which means seize on facts. Is it important that they're terrified or horrified by trauma? Eventually? Yeah. Sure. It's very important that eventually a child thinks that slavery is disgusting, not just something that happened. It needs to ultimately have a visceral response, but not until they're a little bit older. For me and you, I hope these tragedies also evoke something terrible in us. Things like 9-11, things like the Holocaust, things like slavery in America. Eventually, disgust is very helpful. Mm -hmm. But a child doesn't need that. A fourth grader doesn't need to be having nightmares every night about slavery and slave ships. Right. What a child does need to know once they already know that this has happened is accurate information and a fact base. So that means distilling all of the things that are in our hearts, very emotional, into cold facts that are completely right, that are indisputable, the simplest components. When it comes to teaching a Holocaust, this comes up a lot. Rather than describing to kids piles of dead bodies, which will drive them absolutely crazy, describing to them that there were ghettos and asking them what was a ghetto. A ghetto was a place where people were forced to live in one area because of who they were and weren't allowed to leave. This is a way of explaining what happened in a factual way without necessarily conjuring the most negative images. I can see that fourth grade threshold because if I was to talk to Achilles in the first grade about Eastern European ghettos, I know that he wouldn't be able to make the distinction that that happened a long time ago and that's a different world and you don't need to be scared of it. It also raises a question that in many cases, he does need to be scared of many of these things. But the point the researchers would say is that even if he does need to be scared until the fourth grade, he can't do anything about it. He's powerless anyway. Why scare him? The researchers talk about this a lot, especially with weather events. Children are more afraid of weather events than any other tragedy you describe to them. There's something very visceral about seeing a hurricane on TV, and you cannot explain to them the hurricane is happening in a part of the country far away from you. You can be on the other end of the world from a hurricane or a tornado or some other terrible natural disaster. Children automatically assume that this could reach their house tonight. And this is true of all these tragedies is that we have to understand that whatever we tell them, we're running the risk of them believing this could happen to them tomorrow. So we have to be very careful about what we tell them and how much we tell them. And that goes back maybe to the Black Panther conversation is... Achilles has no power one way or the other in reenacting or enacting this systemic oppression right now. So don't burden him with that knowledge with no power. Right. Achilles does not need to know the circumstances that led up to the current situation of white privilege. If he discovers on his own or through his friends or through the media or through school that slavery was a thing and that that made the playing field uneven from the get-go, you need to supplement that with proper information and make sure he hasn't heard misinformation. But 
adding in the graphic parts and the visceral parts, he's just not going to benefit from it at this point in his life. Oh, yeah. I was, I was just thinking, fourth grade is going to be a real fucking doozy for that kid. Like, <laughs> first day, let me talk to you about climate change, the Holocaust, and white privilege. <laughs> Before lunch. That's right. That's right. It's a telling thing that I wasn't able to find any research on how to teach slavery or black oppression to children under the age of 10. But how to teach Holocaust to children under the age of 10 is all over the place. That's partially because the Holocaust is so studied and partially because it's a very interesting case study, especially in Israel. In Israel, there's a national day of mourning for the Holocaust and a siren that goes on for two minutes where everybody stands completely still. I was seeing in the studies that preschool teachers are asking what they're supposed to do. You got to explain what's happening. It's not avoidable. You can't not tell them about the Holocaust when there's a day every year where everybody, including them, has to be silent for two minutes while a siren blares out. And especially in Israel and among Jews living in Israel, Holocaust is so much a part of the culture that it's inescapable from the time you're a little kid. I don't know what your upbringing was like in this regard, but I was definitely traumatized by the Holocaust by the time I was three or four years old. Piles of kids' shoes. They showed me bars of soap they claimed were made from people. I was pretty terrified. Yeah, I think I saw the sorrow and the pity when I was like seven. It's wild because in Jewish culture, it's very much a thing to teach very young kids about the Holocaust. And what the studies are saying is that letting Jewish kids know that the Holocaust happened, letting all kids know that the Holocaust happened is not necessarily a bad thing. But when you're showing them pictures of piles of bodies, I didn't know how to contextualize that. I didn't know what it meant that six million people were dead. If the only thing a child's getting out of this is that I'm scared, then what's the value of the education? I feel the same way. Since we started recording this segment, I got two emails from my son's school that they've had two soft lockdown drills because I have two sons at two different schools. They had a soft lockdown drill today. They had a hard lockdown drill on Tuesday. Just like the kids in Parkland grew up with school shooting being part of their educational experience, my kids are dealing with lockdown drills on a weekly basis it's wild and when they ask about it you know achilles came home and said someone shot up a school and killed all these people when we were talking about charlotte earlier and he 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 brought it up he said why would this guy go into a church and shoot people and he killed them i can't control what happens at his school and furthermore he does need to have lockdown drills that's how we live today but i don't want him to grow up so fearful and at the same time if I'm honest with myself, I don't want him to grow up fearful. I'm fearful. That's my son. It's about eating that fear, meaning I don't want to pass on to him how scared I am for him. I want him to have his lockdown drills, Augie and Achilles, four and six, approach them with the least amount of fear and insecurity as possible. I'll feel that for them. They're just kids. I want them to live through the trauma without experiencing it as traumatic. I'll experience it as traumatic for them. Okay. That's, that's a very good final word. Well, Josh, it has, as always, been very enlightening and thought-provoking. Thank you for stopping by. Thank you. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening to The Fatherly Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua David Stein. Join me next week as I welcome to the studio the last of the great heavies, actor Robert Patrick. You know him as a bad guy from Terminator 2, but he's much more than that. Today's episode was executive produced by Sandy Smallins and engineered by Dave Savage. Theme music by Kyle Forrester, with a little help from Augie Hierenstein. If you enjoyed the podcast, give us a high five, rating, and subscribe on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. That's all I got. Hey kids, you got anything to add? Boo, 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 boo,